are a few weeks now into our series in, uh, that we're calling Build Up, and, and this series is all about in a time of tearing down, in a time of polarization, in a time um, when we are more divided than ever, how can we as the people of God be those who build up? God is a God who builds us up and gives us everything we need. How can we be a people who build others up? And so we're asking that question, and, and you don't have to look very hard in the Word of God to find uh, this command of God, this imperative that we build one another up and we build God's kingdom, not our own kingdoms, not the kingdom of man, but the kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And so we will continue in this series this morning, and the um, meta-analogy that we have been using is actually an analogy um, of the tree, and, and this is not a new analogy. The Bible is full of um, the tree as a metaphor for the spiritual life. And, and so um, I had this experience at a wedding uh, a few years ago. Mark and Megan Lawrence got married up in the mountains of Washington, and there was just these beautiful, tall, majestic trees. And it was a very windy day, and I remember during the reception just looking up and seeing these trees blowing 20 feet in either direction, thinking this forest is about to fall. And as I allowed my eye to fall down the trunk of the tree, down to the base of the tree, I realized the swaying was no more. And in that moment, uh, God said, this is what I want you to be like, Dave. I want, you to, I want to grow you tall so that you might be uh, amongst the trees, not separate from them, but amongst all the trees. But I want you to be sound grounded and firm, unmovable in your faith in me. And so this is the people we all should become, people who are grounded and unmovable and unshakable, even though we experience the wind and the waves of this world and of history and, and of each moment. And, and, and the wind is strong now, is it not? The wind is most definitely strong. And so how do we become these kinds of people? Now, Last week, we talked about the power of the tongue to either tear down or to build up, and we said, what if we used our tongues, uh, our words, whether they're written or spoken, to build up rather than to tear down? And, and in, at the end of my sermon, I said I would come back to this this week. Uh, and last week, we talked about particularly words of encouragement, um, and those are like these uh, acorns of grace that, that could lead to a forest of grace uh, if they take root in someone's life. And so don't withhold a word of encouragement, a word of praise, uh, a word of love that God puts into your mouth and, and has asked you to speak into the world. And so, but we also said that we come back this week and talk about um, words God gives us are not just for encouragement, but also for correction. And so I said, I, I need to break this out for an entire sermon. How do we use this tool of a word of correction to actually build up? Because it's not just about pumping up people's egos or telling them nice things. It's also about telling them hard things, things that will lead them to repentance. And if we do both of those, we might actually become, become the kinds of uh, towers of grace that God desires for us to be. And this analogy, again, you don't have to look far. Jesus talked about this idea. And in John 15, he says, listen, I am the vine. In fact, let me just read it to you. Jesus said this, I am the vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch that does not bear fruit, he takes away. 
and every branch that does not bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Now here's the idea of pruning. Every good plant has some things that begin to grow off of it that are actually contrary to the kingdom of God. They actually don't lead to God's good ends, um, and, and they take nutrients, and they take energy, and they, and they take time a, a away from the things that are actually building us up. And so, God will, by His grace, prune those branches, take them away, remove them, so that our energies, talents, resources can be uh, moved and efficiently used in the things of God. And so, this idea of pruning comes from Jesus. And pruning is like giving a word of correction. And to show you how this happens, I want to look at a famous passage in 2 Samuel. That's in the Old Testament. So if you've got a copy of the Scriptures, we're not going to actually have the Scripture up for you this week. We want you to get your Bible and open it up or Google. 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel chapters 11 through 13, where we find this famous story of King David, the greatest king of Israel, the king to whom it said he was a man after God's own heart, the king who said the only king greater than him will be the king, the Messiah that comes, that is Jesus. This man and his encounter with a woman named Bathsheba and, and his encounter with Bathsheba's husband named Uriah and, and then his encounter with this prophet named Nathan and if you haven't heard this story, I just want you to listen closely. This is one of the most famous stories in all of the world, not, 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 not just in Christian circles. This is one of the most famous stories in all of the world. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read it for us, and we're going to be looking for this principle. How can a word of correction actually lead to the building up of a man or a woman and of God's kingdom here on earth? So are you ready? We're going to be in 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 11 through 13. So it says this, In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab, his general, and his servants with him, and all of Israel. So he sends out the army to do battle. And they ravaged the Ammonites, and they besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. At this point, you may be tipped off uh, that David might be doing something wrong <laughs> as he sends all of Israel, all of his fighting men, his generals and everyone else out to war, which is common that kings go out to battle in this time of year, but David stays back. Verse 2, it happened late one afternoon. Let me just pause there. Nothing good happens late in the day, Okay. Be very careful late in the day. This is when your body is tired, you are not at your best. Never click send late in the day. Just get home, go to bed, stay safe. It's late one afternoon when David arose from his couch, he was taking a nap, and he was walking on the roof of the king's house. And he saw from the roof a woman bathing and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. See, at this point, he didn't know who this woman was. So he sends some of his men to inquire, who is this woman? Now, David is already married. He has 
plenty in his own household, but his eye is attracted to somebody outside of his own possession. And his men came back, and they said to David, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers. The answer is, oh yes, of course it is. He knows it is. But David sent messengers and took her and brought her to come to him. And he, that's King David, lay with her. If you don't know what that means, they had sex. And she came to him, or sorry, now she had been purifying herself from uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived. And she sent and told David, I am pregnant. Well, as you can tell, this is not going well. Uh, This is right here in the Bible, (laughs) and I love, if you've never read uh, the Old Testament. It's full of stories of, of those people who are supposed to be spiritual heroes acting in ways that are wicked, deceitful, unrighteous, unholy. It's not full. It's not, it's not a handbook on how to live a righteous life. It's a handbook on the fact that no one, no, not one is righteous. And here you have the king of Israel, the man after God's own heart, who knows the word, who, who wrote most of the Psalms, these songs of praise that we sing, and here he is, coveting his neighbor's wife. Now here's the thing you have to understand. If that's not wicked enough, Uriah the Hittite is not just anybody. If, if, you, if you studied the beginning of David's life, when he was coming up to power, the current king, King Saul, was trying to murder David because he realized that God had a his special hand on David and was raising him up. And Saul was jealous of David, and he tried to kill him, and he sent men out to hunt David down, and David was fleeing for his life. And there were a few men, a few of his friends, David's friends, who said, listen, I will stay with you and protect you. They're known as David's mighty men. And they slept in caves with David, and they protect David. Guess who was one of those mighty men? Uriah the Hittite. This isn't just anyone. This is one of his closest friends. David owes him his life, and he sleeps, and David sleeps with Uriah's wife when Uriah is out at war. Can't get any worse than that, right? Well, let's keep reading. So David realizes he's impregnated his good friend's wife while he's out at war, so what does David do? He does this, verse 6. So David sent word to Joab, the general of the army, the army in which Uriah was fighting with, and he said this, Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David, back to Jerusalem. When Uriah came to him, David asked him, Joab, or sorry, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. So David brings Uriah into the palace, begins to talk with him, begins to uh, ask him how things are going out there. Of course, all of this deception, because the reason that David's brought him back is some other reason. And then David said to Uriah, why don't you go down to your own house, wash your feet? Why is he doing this? Why Why did David bring him back? David brought him back because 
He's smart. He said, if I can bring Uriah back, Uriah comes and lays with his own wife, then no one will know whose child this is. We won't be able to tell when actually conception happens. And so David's whole point of bringing Uriah back is to try to get him to have sex with his own wife, with Uriah's wife, Bathsheba, so that he can cover up what he's done. But look at what Uriah does. So Uriah went out of the king's house, and there followed him a present from the king. (laughs) We don't know what this present was, but David, again, is lavishing him with gifts, trying to make this night as special as possible for Uriah and Bathsheba. But look at verse 9. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all of his servants and did not go down to his own house. When they told David this, that Uriah did not go down to his own house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a long journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in in booths. That just means tent, war tents. And my lord Joab, the general, and, and all the servants of the Lord, they're camping in the open field. Shall I come back here, he's saying, and go to my own house and eat and drink and lie with my wife? While all these other soldiers are out there, why, why would I do that? Those are, those are my men. Those are my friends. So you see the juxtaposition of the deception and the wickedness of King David and the righteousness and the sacrificial living of Uriah the Hittite, who is not even an Israelite. Hopefully this is coming to life for you. And it it gets worse. (laughs) David in that moment should have been like, wow, here's a man who's truly living righteously. He's not thinking of himself first. And and David should just confess what he's done, but he doesn't. He doubles down. This is, I didn't even realize this until studying uh, this passage this week, that, that David doubles down. And look what he does. Then David said to Uriah, this is verse 12, Remain here today also and tomorrow, and then I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next, and David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank, so that he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of the Lord, but he did not go down to his house. What's so? You see what David's doing? David tries to get him drunk, because we all know what happens when men get drunk. Do you see? You see how real and gritty this narrative is? David's like, I can't get him to go down, so i got to get him drunk. Then maybe when he's drunk, he'll stop acting righteously and sleep with the servants, and he'll go sleep with his wife, and then I'll be free of my sin. But Uriah, again, does not do that. And so in the morning, verse 14, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. How cruel and wicked is this? Because in this letter is orders from the king to the general to send Uriah to the front of the fighting to the most defensed part of the city that they were trying to besiege so that Uriah would be killed in battle. And David hands those orders for his own murder to the man he is going to murder. And that man takes that message to the general And the general puts Uriah on the front line, and it says many men were killed, including Uriah. David says, I can't get him with plan A. Plan B is I've got to eliminate him. 
That's the only way to cover up my sin, David thinks. And so he sends Uriah to his death. And along the way, many other men of Israel were killed trying to cover up David's sin. This is heartbreaking. This, this, this is the king of Israel. This is the one to whom is supposed to represent God's righteousness to the people. This is supposed to be the judge of justice in the land of Israel. And here is a man. Think about what he's done. He's coveted his neighbor's wife. He's slept with his neighbor's wife. Adultery. He's committed murder. And he's lied about it. He's broken at least half of the Ten Commandments. And this is supposed to be the man that the people are supposed to look to as to what righteousness and goodness looks like as a person of God. There's utter witness or wickedness and darkness in the heart of David. What does that teach us? What does that tell us? Well, it tells us that no one is righteous, no, not one. And if you think that you don't have that same wickedness in you, that same deception in you, then you are one step closer to falling into sin. Don't pull the wool over your own eyes to think that you are somehow better than David or read about Abraham, better than Abraham or better than Moses who wasn't even allowed in the promised land or better than Peter who denied Jesus three times. Each and every human being has the seeds of this kind of evil and wickedness in their soul. You're born with it, David will tell us later. And the first step to falling into that sin is to not believe you're capable of it. We're all capable of this. We must be vigilant to fight against all the things that build up to lead us into a moment like this. That's the first thing I want you to take away. No one, no, not one, is impervious to the temptations of this world, to evil taking root and taking over their life. Here you have King David. Oh, it's absolutely brutal to think about this. The destruction that's led from this man's wicked heart. So what happens next? Uriah's been killed. Bathsheba is now a widow. She's pregnant. Well, David invites Bathsheba into his, into his house. And David marries her and takes her as one of his wives. And she gets near to the end of her pregnancy and then something happens. God sends somebody into David's life. And, and, and if you read the narrative, it seems to be, um, and I, I didn't realize this until this week, that, that God doesn't send Nathan the prophet to speak into David's life until probably the very end of the pregnancy, just probably days before this child that was conceived out of wedlock through adultery, through murder, it's at the very end of that pregnancy that God sends Nathan, reveals to Nathan the prophet what David has actually done, whose child this actually is, how David has murdered Uriah, and, and, and God sends the prophet Nathan to rebuke 
King David. Now, if, you're just, if you just understand the deep wickedness and evil of everything that David's done, what you would expect is Nathan to come in hot. He's going to come in and he's just going to blast King David and say, I know what you've done. God's revealed it to me. You're an adulterer, a murderer, a cheat. Let's see what Nathan does. This is chapter 12, starting in verse 1. This is the prophet Nathan. The word of the Lord says this, And the Lord, Yahweh, sent Nathan to David. So this is God's doing. He has initiated this encounter. So Nathan came to David and said to him, What? What does he say? He tells him a story. There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had, had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb. That's just a, a baby girl lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him, with his children. This lamb used to eat the morsels and drink from the cup of this man and lie in this man's arms. They used to cuddle together, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man's house, and the rich man was unwilling to take one of his own flock, of which he had multitudes of his own herd, to prepare the guest a meal. Now this was... Socially required, if somebody came to your house, a traveler, it was socially required that you provide hospitality to them, a meal, a place to stay. And so this man is following social, cultural norms, but he's stingy. And he says, I don't want to actually lose anything in this encounter. I don't want to have to lose and give of my flock. And so what does he do? He takes the poor man's lamb. The rich man takes the poor man's lamb and prepares it for this guest who had come as a traveler. So David, or sorry, Nathan says, David, I've got something to say to you. I've got something to tell you. And he tells him this story. Now, what you have to understand is one of David's job as the king was to sit in court and to judge matters of the land. So this wouldn't have been that unusual uh, for David to hear about this um, a case like this. He's like the Supreme Court of Israel. That's one of the jobs of the king. There wasn't separation of powers. He was both the commander of the army and he was the Supreme Court. And so he would often just sit in court and people would bring things for him to judge. So David's probably thinking, okay, Nathan's bringing me a case and, and I'm going to hear it. So he's not even tipped off to what Nathan is doing here. So Nathan brings this account to him and look at David's response. Verse 5, then David's anger was greatly kindled he was on fire against the man, the rich man, who had done this. And David said to Nathan, quote, as the Lord lives, that's a huge statement. That's a huge um, uh, oath that David said. As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity on the poor man. Now, what's going on? Well, you, you may or may not see this, but it, it, it's both a story of obvious injustice and, and obvious um, 
uh, just moral, what's the word? Just moral decay. It, it's an obvious story of that, but it's also analogous to the situation. Who, who is the poor man? That's Uriah, who has but one wife, who has uh, but very little. And, and, and who is the rich man? That's, of course, David, who has a harem, and he has houses, and he has everything that, that God has bestowed upon him. We'll see this later in the narrative, that, he, that God brings that out. Have I not given you enough? Do you not have everything that you could possibly want? And yet you go after your friend Uriah's wife. So, so there's analogy there. David doesn't see it, of course, at this point. He's just outraged at the moral decay of this man, about the unrighteousness of the situation, about the injustice that he's seen, and he is truly outraged. Now, there's a couple things uh, to understand here. When he says, this man needs to repay fourfold, that's actually part of the Mosaic law, that if you steal from your neighbor and you're caught, you would repay whatever you've taken fourfold. So David is actually, in that sense, judged rightly. Now, when David says he deserves to die, now, you can sort of understand it because this is just a despicable thing to do, to take this man's one little lamb. But actually what's happening here is David is overreacting. Taking someone's lamb is not punishable by death, neither by the law nor by any sense of common sense retribution. Why is David so outraged? Here's what I think. I think he feels his own guilt that he's been sitting with for nine months. He knows what he's done, and he's overcompensating for the sin heard in the story told by Nathan. He's actually revealing to himself that, that his own guilt is overwhelming, and he's trying to take that out by pursuing justice beyond the bounds of normalcy. Have you ever done that? I think this is common, is it not? If you are living in sin, if you are living in injustice, you will find something else to be hyper-vigilant about. Some form of justice, some form of righteous living that you become now hyper-vigilant in because you yourself are living in unrepentant sin. That's what happened to King David. That's what happens to us. That we somehow try to balance the scales when we have injustice, unrighteousness in our own heart. And that's what David's doing here. This man doesn't deserve to die for stealing. He should be reprimanded, maybe even thrown in jail, I'd say, but probably not put to death. You know what you could be put to death for according to the Mosaic Law? Adultery. Murder. All the things that King David himself has done. So in a sense, he's judging himself when he hears of other injustice. So why did Nathan lead with this story? <laughs> and look at verse 7. As soon as he's told this story, and David is outraged, in, in, the, in the clearest application of a sermon ever, look at what Nathan says in verse 7. Nathan said to David, you are that man. You are that man. So ultimately, Nathan gets there to the forward powerful, straightforward rebuke. You are this man. You deserve to die for what you have done. Why does he keep, why, why, does he, why doesn't he lead with that? Why does he leave it to the end? And the answer is, this is the shrewdness of grace. This is the shrewdness of grace. 
Nathan knows something that's so true that any of our sins, and especially a sin so egregious as the sin of David in this instant, this kind of sin doesn't come about just on a whim. There is a spinning of a web of self-deceit, self-deception, rationalization, and the building up of defense mechanisms that allows you to get to the place where you could do this, particularly to a close friend, and then cover it up, and then kill people. There has been such a web spun by David that Nathan knows if he wants to reach David at all, if he just comes in guns blazing, David's defense mechanisms, which he's been building up for nine months, will not easily come down. David will deny He will continue to lie, cover up. So Nathan, in the shrewdness of grace, leads with a story. See what's going on? The prophet Nathan is a prophet of who? Yahweh, a prophet of the one true God. And his job is to reflect the very character of God. And what is the character of God? The character of God is leading his people to repentance, not to condemnation. God's character is he is a God that is overflowing with patient, loving kindness. So God goes for conviction and conversion, not condemnation. So wherever there is any hope at all for conviction and conversion rather than condemnation, that's what God does. And so therefore, that's what Nathan, the prophet of God, does so beautifully here. Are you, are, you, are you understanding what he's doing, the shrewdness of his grace? It's so easy when we are confronting people with the truth of their own sin to do it in such a way that you, uh, you're like hitting the button for those defense mechanisms, those walls that they've spent so long building up to hide their sin from the world that it's so easy to just to, to hit the, the button that shoots up the walls. So you have to find a way to not let that happen if you're going to bring a word of correction to a brother or sister in Christ. How do you bring something to someone, truth to someone, so that those walls don't go up so high that they're never able to repent? So that they don't, again, like David has done before, double down on his lies and deceptions and build those walls even higher. Nathan gives us an example. You see, we need to be people of grace and truth. The New Testament tells us that. It's not enough just to be forgiving and to give grace. We also have to be people of truth. Speak a hard word. But don't lead with a sledgehammer. At least try something first that you might, that you might actually engage the redeemed heart of the believer so that they don't put up those walls. Try something else first before you bring the sledgehammer of truth. Listen, it glorifies God to tell the truth about sin. Don't get me wrong. It glorifies God to tell the truth about sin. But it glorifies God more if if the person you are telling that truth to repents. So don't beat them up, but lead them to repentance. Disarm them, don't condemn them. Nathan helps David himself bring down those defense mechanisms. Be after transformation rather than just being valiant for the truth. 
Nathan does that so beautifully here. He reveals what's obvious already in David's heart, that he has acted unjustly. It's such a magnitude that it becomes obvious to David. And as we'll see later, David does repent and falls on his knees and begs God for forgiveness. And that's because of the shrewdness of the grace of Nathan the prophet. So quick application here. Be willing to be a Nathan in someone's life. Are you willing to do that? To be a Nathan in someone's life? To shrewdly speak a word of correction? To say at at some point you are that man, you are that woman because you see a branch in someone's life that needs pruning, that needs repentance and correction? Will you be that Nathan to someone? Will you ask God for the wisdom of how to bring that before them so that they they don't put up the walls but they bring down the walls and, and hear and repent? Will you be an Nathan to somebody? Who, who comes into your mind right now that you might need to be a Nathan to? Pray that God would give you the words and the impetus to bring their sin before them, that they might turn and repent. Also, get a Nathan for yourself. Invite someone into your life to speak that word of correction. Give a friend the green light. Give them a hunting license. Say, I want you to be able to speak that word of correction to me because I know that none is righteous. No, not one. Give them the hunting license to look at your life and ask them to speak a word of creation. Say, hey, would you be a Nathan to me? So be a Nathan to somebody and get yourself a Nathan. Tell the truth in such a way that, that it accords with the ultimate truth, the truth that God hopes that all would repent and turn back to him. If you want to look for more impetus for this, go to Hebrews 3.13. And you know what? This doesn't happen best via Facebook. (laughs) This happens best face-to-face. Man-on-man, woman-on-woman. Don't let all of your Nathanisms happen behind a computer screen. That doesn't work. God works through the personal brave attack. Because even, even though when you bring a word of correction into somebody's life, their, their first response is going to be to disbelieve you. They won't want to believe you because their sin is so corrupting them and they don't want to look at it in the face, right? I mean, I mean the millennial generation is the worst of this. We are terrible at receiving words of correction. And so, so you, you will know that they want to disbelieve you when you bring this to them but they won't be able to do it if you come face to face with them and you look them in the eye and they see your goodwill and they know that you have their best in mind. This is the only way that it works. This is the way it worked for David. He knew Nathan. He knew Nathan had his best in mind and the kingdom of God at mind. And so what were the results in David's life? And what will be the results in your life if you choose to be a Nathan or invite a Nathan into yours? Look at uh, verses 13 14 and 15, it says this. After God promised David that this would lead to evil outcomes in his kingdom, David said this. David said to Nathan, verse 13, I have sinned against Yahweh. I've sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord Yahweh also has put away your sin. 
you shall not die as you deserve to die. But then he says, verse 14, Nevertheless, because of this deed, you have utterly scorned the Lord. The child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. Three final things here. And and these, these things are heartbreaking. Even though God forgives David, it does not mean that the consequences in this life for his sin aren't horrifically real. You can keep reading in verse 12 and you, and you hear about the anguish that comes to this family because this infant dies seven days after birth. And, and Nathan's telling David, God is saying the consequence of your, of your sin is real in this life. You don't get to just kind of sin, ask God for forgiveness, and everything's hunky-dory. There's real consequence for your sin. You need, you need to hear that. Your sin is creating a mess in this world. So you need to be vigilant. You need to be killing your sin or your sin will be killing you, John Owen. You have to understand this. Otherwise, you won't take seriously your sin. Second thing, even though the sin is serious and it leads to the death of his child, God's grace and salvation are assured to King David. Even though he broke half of the Ten Commandments, he murdered, he's an adulterer, God says to David, your sin has been put away and you shall not die. That's not fair. What's fair is that David would die for what he's done once it's come to light. He'd be persecuted like anyone else who did the same thing, and he would die, and God says, no, you will not die. In fact, not only will you not die in this life for these uh, death-requiring sins of adultery and murder, but in fact, that sin has been put away it's no longer going to be accounted to you. How is this humanly possible? It's not. What is actually being predicted here, and David doesn't even fully know this, he just knows the character of God, is that there's coming another courtroom scene in which a case is brought before the people. And this isn't the courtroom of David, this is the courtroom of Pilate. This is the courtroom in which Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, came before. He never sinned, he never did one or spoke one thing unrighteously, he stands fully innocent before the law of the land and he is condemned. And he dies the death that David should have died. He dies the death that I should have died and you should have died for your sin. And predicting that historical moment when actually the sins of David will be put on the shoulders of the Messiah, God in the flesh, and taken away Yahweh tells David, I've put your sins away. And what he's saying is, I've put them on the Messiah who will come, my son, in the flesh, a thousand years from now, and you can know with assurance that you will not be judged for those sins because Christ will be judged. And this assurance is born upon the heels of true repentance. Let me just read for you um, a few lines here right after this in verse, verses 16 and 17. So this is after Nathan goes back to his house. 
And it says, The Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. And David therefore sought God on behalf of the child, and David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground, begging the Lord, pleading for mercy, asking for forgiveness. And the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. David prostrates himself what seems to be night after night until ultimately the child dies, fully recognizing his sin, fully repenting, asking God for forgiveness. He knows what he's done. He's not just flippantly receiving the forgiveness of God. He knows what he's done. He's truly stricken to the heart by the effects of his sin. He knows that the reason that his child is sick is his sin. He's no longer blaming anyone else. He's no longer deceiving himself. He's no longer rationalizing his sin. He's accepting it and he's repenting and he's saying, God, forgive me. This is the outcome of the shrewd gift of grace, a word of correction. And I just want to just, just close by reading Psalm 51, which is the great song of repentance written by David in, in the moments immediately following this account. These, this is what David knew of himself. I'm going to ask the band, they'll come up as I read this psalm over us. I'm going to read this psalm as a prayer over us. This needs to be our prayer. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We all need our sin to be put away and on the shoulders of Jesus Christ so that we do not die, so that we can have life and life eternal with the Father. We need these words. So pray this with me as, as I read. These are the words of David penned after the prophet Nathan spoke a word of correction over him after he had sinned grievously against the Lord and the word of the Lord. David, and we say this. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in my sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you reach me, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let, let me hear joy and gladness. Let, let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me, but restore me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with, your will, with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgress, transgressors your way and sinners will return to you. Deliver 
me from blood guiltness, guiltiness. O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a contrite heart. O God, will you not despise those things? Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. God, hear our prayers of repentance. Amen.